Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the pod that looks at the money behind the beautiful game. I'm your saintly host, Kevin Day, and over there in the naughty chair is football finance expert Kieran Maguire. Yes, Kieran, you may well hang your head in shame. We had lots of complaints from people last week, horrified, horrified that you mispronounced the name of Arsenal's owner, for the love of God. How can you get Stan Kroenke's name so wrong? I mixed him up with the Crankies. Uh, uh, an easy mistake to make. Yes, in the circumstances, I've got a cranky story that I won't share with you. But uh, <laughs> I think I know that one. Yes, I'll oh, do. You? Okay, I think <laughs> you'd be amazed how many dancers claim to be the person involved. Um, <laughs> I, I think yes. Well, I think what last week proves, Kieran, is that guys should listen to the pod more often, shouldn't they, before he puts it straight out? But there you are. Um, it's questions uh, day, Kieran. Um, but Indeed. unfortunately. For some reason, the, the, the sizzling hot weather in true tabloid style is, is just bringing sizzling hot news. We've, we're getting more news on questions today than we have before. So we need to deal with some of them. The, the first one, Kieran, I think we will deal with fully on Thursday. But clubs in League 1 and League 2 have voted in favour of a salary cap. And as I say, we'll cover this in full detail on Thursday. But your initial reaction, were you surprised? And do we know the numbers of the vote either way? Um, it, it certainly wasn't 100% from uh, talking to one or two people close to the EFL, is, is uh, my, my official phrase there. Um, and re- the really strange thing is that they've replaced a salary cap with a salary cap. So they used to have what's referred to as a soft cap, which was based on a percentage of income. And now it's a hard cap, two and a half million pounds in League One, uh, one and a half million pounds in League Two. But as you rightly say, we'll go into this in some depth on Thursday because there's a lot of meat on the bones here. Uh, and I'm hoping to have a chat with the sports lawyer about this as well, because the PFA are kicking off big style. Great. OK, we'll look forward to that. Um, Wolves have been found guilty of breaching UEFA's fair play rules. Uh, yes, th- this uh, this came out on Friday and, and compared to the kerfuffle that we saw in relation to Manchester City's breach of yeah. financial fair play, um, effectively went under the radar um, and also, if you take a look at the sanctions given against Wolves, uh, they've been given a, a €600,000 fine, which, which they could get €400,000 back if, if they if they promise to be good boys. Um, a bit like me on this podcast. Um, yeah, yeah your, your suspended fine is staying suspended for quite some time yet, Kieran. <laughs> Trust me, it's going to take more than one pod for you to get that money back. What, what exactly have they been found guilty of? Right. Under UEFA's financial fair play rules, you're only allowed to lose 30 million euros over three years. This is completely inconsistent with what we see in the Premier League, where you're allowed to lose 105 million. So so Wolves are within the the Premier League limits because they've lost around about 60 million over three years. Um, but they have exceeded the UEFA gap. So UEFA has said, we're going to give you a fine. I think this this could be a big deal for a club other than Wolves. Mm. We're going to restrict your squad size to 23. Well, you know, Santos, he, he, he doesn't, doesn't, doesn't rotate his players that much. So I, I don't think it will hit them that bad. I think the only issue that they'd be a little bit miffed about is that they've had a restriction on how much they can pay out in wages for next season. Um, which you know, might give them a little bit of aggravation in, in terms of when they're trying to recruit players over the forthcoming transfer window. Having said that, they're only going to be playing in UEFA competitions next season if they win the Europa League. So that there's, a, there's an element of chicken and egg in terms of you know, they won't know whether they can recruit players until they've won 
the, the Europa League and they're not going to win the Europa League for at least another what, two or three weeks, given the way that it's dragging on uh, in terms of the way that the competition has been organised. Uh, now, you've you've half answered my next question, which I was afraid was a really stupid question, but that's part of the dynamic of the pod. That's what I'm here for. So the, the UEFA fair play rules only apply to teams taking part in UEFA competitions. Is that right? That's correct. Other than that, they they allow the domestic leagues to effectively rule things on on a localised basis, which which makes sense because you've got local cultures, you've got local tax rules, you've got uh, local expectations as well. Now, this next story is obviously a bigger one in the London press than elsewhere, but Paul Elliott and Chris Farnell have both had their applications to take over Charlton Athletic rejected by the EFL. Um, The Evening Standard was very upset by this, saying it affects Charlton's future um, because they they may go out of business. But for once here, I'm almost going to feel like I should defend the EFL because it... They're kind of damned if they don't and damned when they do, because we, we rightly have a go at them when they step when they don't step in and say these people are not fit and proper persons. And now they have stepped in and said these people are not fit to run Shelton. They're still being complained about. Yeah, it's it's a really awkward one because um Charlton have had a, a really bad run uh, in terms of owners over the course of the, the last 12 months. They started off with uh, Roland de Chachelet, who was unpopular with Charlton fans. And I, I always used to say, well, he, he might be unpopular. I can fully understand that Charlton haven't performed well on the pitch, but he did put his money where his mouth is. Mm. You know, he lend, he certainly did, did, did lend the club substantial sums of money. He effectively then sold Charlton for a pound to Matt Southall and Tanun Nimer. Um, but they couldn't prove to the EFL that they had funding. So Charlton immediately went into a transfer embargo. Um, those two fell out quite spectacularly early on because there were allegations being made about uh, inappropriate levels of spending. So therefore, they put the, the club up for sale. And now we've got these two guys. One of which is a guy called Chris Fennell. He's a He's a lawyer. Uh, he lives in Hale in Cheshire, which is uh, just around the corner from when, where I used to live. Um, and uh, he he advised uh, Cellino uh, when he was acquiring Leeds. So that was quite a notorious guy. I think he was also involved he, with coming up with a Brazilian priest who was going to take over Berry Football Club. Um, a few years ago, he was accused and then acquitted of attacking his wife. Um, so that was that was quite juicy. So there's, there's, there's quite a lot of stories going around about him. And then yesterday, uh, a bunch of Charlton fans, by all accounts, turned up at Chris Farnell's offices to, um, in South London terms, have a word with him. <laughs> right. Um, and that didn't go down too well. So his other partner is a guy called Paul Elliott, who uh, he's just described as a businessman. Oh, right. um, now I've got I've got lots of uncles who are businessmen yes um and uh that's how they like to describe themselves as well and i'll say no more than that legitimate businessmen i think you'll find kieran um oh absolutely is is there i mean of course there are causes for concern but the the standard in london is is clearly suggesting that if charlton don't find new owners by the time the new season starts the afl may not let them take part that that is a, a genuine uh, chance of that happening. Uh, remember, the, the owners are not putting money into the club, so so Charlton um, they've got a transfer embargo. They're going to have to sell players, I think, to pay the bills over the course of the summer. Lee Boyer is 
who, who's, who let's admit, who, he's, he's never a guy that looks happy at the best of times. He, he's looking even more downtrodden than ever. Um, and uh, yeah, could Charlton become the next Berry? You, you hope not, of course, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it's getting worse and worse. And uh, yeah, I think it does go back to issues of governance in terms of the transfer of ownership and the present rules simply do not work. Mm. And off the back of that is a question from Phil Clark. And I think I already know the answer to this, Kieran, because we do, strangely enough, talked before and after the pod, um, mainly me pleading with you not to say things that's going to get us into trouble. But Phil Clark reports that Charlton have sold off their sell-on clause for Joe Gomez. Can they do that? And if they can, says Phil Clark, isn't isn't the buyer taking a hell of a risk? Uh, they're perfectly entitled to do that. Are they? Um, yep. Yeah. Oh. You, you, you can you can sell a contract for practically everything. So this is a this is a what's referred to as a contingent gain for Charlton should Joe Gomez be sold by by Liverpool Football Club. Um, and, and you can effectively take out it's a glorified insurance policy that right. we don't know whether he's going to be sold or not. Somebody comes along and says, well, you know, I think he's going to be sold at a potential profit of 10 million, 30 percent chance of that happening. I'll give you three million now, and that would that that's fine. Brighton did something broadly similar when they sold Gareth Barry to to Aston Villa. Uh, they had a big sell-on clause, and then uh, yeah, you know, as you know, my club we, we were skinted at, at the at the of end course, of the last yeah. century, um, and we sold the the Gareth Barry sell-on clause for about you know, less than a million quid, which proved to be not the greatest deal in the history of the club. So how much, as a matter of interest, not that I'm interested remotely in anything that Brighton do, but as a matter of interest for grown-ups listening to this, how much did Brighton lose out eventually then? Um, I think it was around about four or five million. As much as that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Um, now, this next story would be funny if it wasn't... Uh, it is quite funny. I'm, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this. Um, Aberdeen's game at St Johnston uh, was called off this weekend after eight, yes, eight Aberdeen players went boozing in a pub which turned out to be the heart of a coronavirus outbreak in Aberdeen. Two players have tested positive and they are self-isolating along with uh, the six that have tested negative. Um, Nicola Sturgeon, as we've seen, is very unhappy about this and I don't blame her, uh, although there are certain funny elements to it. They're they're not. Don't tweet me. Um, There's been no points deduction by the Scottish authorities, I understand, but will there be any financial ramifications for this? I can't imagine St Johnson will be... Too pleased, although I guess with without crowds in it, it matters less, does it? Well, um, in in terms of Aberdeen, you're absolutely right. Uh, yeah, the players have been tested twice weekly. That they've breached protocols. Nicola Sturgeon has has certainly given a right old whinge about this. Uh, but when it comes to punishment, the, the Aberdeen could potentially be given a charge by the Scottish Football Association. So I don't think anything from the SPFL. They will have to go and pay St. Johnson's expenses in, right. in terms of the match. Um, but those shouldn't be too significant. Um, but the, the players involved, clearly, you know, this is sort of sitcom territory i would imagine if, if again if the circumstances weren't so so dangerous uh, in terms of public health issues um but people do go out and socialize so you know, that happens in other aspects of of working life as well uh, and we are seeing that increasingly um as as the summer develops uh, i can assure you if you go if you go down to brighton beach today uh, you know it's absolutely rammed you can't get a place in the car parks or anything 
do we hold football clubs to a to a higher standard of expectation than we do in respect of other businesses? Uh, I'm going to say yes to that in the current circumstances. Um, I, I understand what you say because we've we've had this argument before about footballers being role models, but I've, I think. I, yeah, in the, the the rules in Scotland are stricter than here. A friend of mine was going to do a show in Edinburgh last week as a kind of token one-off, the only Edinburgh show that would take place. It was going to be a walk with paying customers. And out of, out of respect to the Scottish rules, he cancelled that show, and that was that, that was the right thing to do. For, for eight Aberdeen players, it, it's bad enough. I don't. They just lost to Rangers, so there's that argument as well, old-fashioned though it is, that they shouldn't really be boozing anyway. But for eight of them to go into a pub that was reported as crowded at the time seems to be grossly irresponsible and neglected their own responsibilities and also sends a really bad message and and i i'm i'm one of those people that do genuinely agree with you i I don't understand why footballers should be role models but in this circumstance they must have realized the irresponsibility of what they were doing surely uh, I, I'm, I'm entirely in, in agreement with you, but the, the behaviour, uh, also the behaviour of, of certain government issues. I'm going to get on a little bit of a soapbox here um, without going into too many details. One of my relatives is uh, got arrested, uh, got up on a charge and was given six months in January. Now, I'm not I'm not unfamiliar with things of that nature, um, as, as you know about my family. And then uh, a few months later, uh, you know, he's in his seventies, so he's he's not he's not a spring chicken. I was told uh, we're willing to let him out, but only if somebody goes and pays a fine. Yeah, right. he's he's a COVID nineteen risk in hospital. Yeah, and now um, you know, so Muggins here goes and pays the fine to get him released because you, you don't want people in the family to be at risk. Yeah, you know, of of health issues yeah. on, on top of other issues as well. It's it's absolutely crazy. Yeah, it's taken a darker turn than I thought that question. I thought that was going to be quite a just humorous, off-the-cuff aperitif before we got into more serious matters, but I misjudged it again, didn't I? Um, Droylsden FC have resigned from the Northern Premier League, but it, it, it's not permanent. They seem to have gone into a sort of hibernation. Yep, yep. So they, they've withdrawn from the NPL this year because they've, they've correctly said we are dealing with uh, a situation whereby we, we can't meet our costs. We, we can't take players out of furlough and pay them and have them training when we've got no money coming in. Now, we've spoken at length about clubs in League One and League Two becoming more reliant upon money coming through the turnstiles than they are in the Premier League. But once you drop out of the EFL, um, the the TV deal for the the, uh, things like the Northern Prem and so on is is you're getting buttons. So so you might get a little bit of money if you have a minor cup run in the FA Cup, but that's about all you can hope for. Um, The players are still expecting their boot money or, or whatever they're entitled to. And um, the club has simply taken the, the view, as you, I think I think the words you use are right, absolutely right. Your hibernation is, is the, the appropriate uh, stance that's been taken, is that they want to be around in five years' time. And if effectively by taking themselves out of competitions for 2021, that increases the chance of Droylston Football Club, which has been around for a long period of yeah. time. Um, it's, it increases the chance of that club being in existence in a few years when you know, hopefully things do return to some form of normality. Yeah, and in the same neck of the woods, we reported recently the good news that Bury AFC, the Phoenix Club, were accepted into the Northwest Counties League Division 1 North. But this week, Bury FC's application to rejoin the non-league pyramid has been denied. I'm hoping that's some kind of anti-Steve Dale statement, but is it anything to do with him or is it? are there financial reasons? 
Um, well, if, if you take a look at the, the official report which has come out of the National League, it says that there are three issues which uh, it had significant concerns about. First of all, whether the club has the financial resources to complete the season. Secondly, issues to do with ownership. Uh, and, and it's fair to say that Steve Dale, uh, when we do our top 10 scumbags uh as requested, as requested by uh, listeners. As, as requested yeah. by viewers, yes, yeah. listeners, absolutely. Um, I think he's, he's in with a shout. Um, and, and thirdly, is to do with the insolvency of the club. But the National League has also said if certain conditions are satisfied, mm. then potentially um, they will reconsider an application in 21-22. Okay, so... It, 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 technically, the National League have been more responsible and more diligent than the EFL were 18 months, two years ago. Um, now, finally, news-wise, Kieran, and this is not really connected to the story we just talked about, only it sort of is. We learned that last month Alexis Sanchez got a £9 million payoff from Man United as part of his deal to join Inter. Now, you talked last week, as a phrase you used, not that one, uh, a tin ear, um, now, it seems to me that football clubs all over the Northwest are struggling. The economy of the Northwest is in turmoil in this global pandemic. And here we've got a footballer at Man United being paid £9 million to bugger off, essentially. Now, I'm, I'm sure he's a nice lad, but it, it gets to the heart of everything we started this podcast for. That's just, it's not fair, Kieran, is it? That's not right. Uh, yeah, fair has nothing to do with it when it comes yeah, to contracts, though. Cool and, 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 and the issue is, is that uh, Alexis Sanchez should have sat on his backside for the two remaining years of his contract, and he would have earned around about £40 million. Mm. So Inter have come in and said, well, I tell you what, we'll sign him on a free. We're not, we're not prepared to pay you for his services. We'll take you off his hands. We will pay him... A, a living wage, uh, it, less, yeah, it has to be said, they will be paying him a substantial sum of money, but he would still have been out of pocket. Um, and, and if you look at what's happened with Gareth Bale, uh, Bale's approach has been the opposite of that of Sanchez. Sanchez has said, well, I do want to pay for, play football. Um, I will be slightly worse off financially. Yeah, he's still going to be a multi-multi-millionaire yeah. uh, out of the end of all of this. And there's, I don't have an issue with that. I've always said footballers are top quality entertainers in their chosen field and in any particular profession, people at the top of it tend to be paid very highly if their skills are in demand. Um, if you contrast that to Gareth Bale, who said, well, I'm not even prepared to come to Manchester yeah. last night, um, and he's just going to sit out on his contract um, for the remaining two years because apparently he likes living in Madrid but not playing for Real Madrid. Yeah. Um, and and you know, from Real's point of view, it's it's going to cost them an absolute fortune to pay him uh, because when they originally signed him, he was on very good money. Then they got him to sign a contract extension in 2016 and things have deteriorated because of his relationship with Zidane ever since. Yeah, he's gone for the full Winston Bogart approach, isn't he? Chelsea, who sat out his contract for some time. But, I mean, the good news is for Gareth that the Spanish press and Spanish fans tend to be quite forgiving about this sort of thing, don't they, really? So I think I think he'll be fine. Um, on to our questions, then. And our first question comes from Jamie Moss. Hello, Jamie. Uh, I'm not going to say hello to everybody because we'll be here all night as we've got a lot of questions, all very good ones. But Jamie's question is, Bolton Wanderers women's team have split from the parent club because they think they will be able to better market themselves and raise funds. Now, are some sponsors, asked Jamie, more inclined to align themselves with the friendlier game, as he called it? Uh, is there more value in a standalone deal than a joint one with 
the men's club. And I, I think this is something in the next two years, Kieran, I think we both agree that, you know, gambling sponsorship is likely to disappear. So football clubs, both men and women, will be looking for friendlier sponsors for the friendlier game, I guess. Correct. Absolutely. I mean, what what we are seeing uh, in terms of women's football is that there isn't a huge overlap between people who are watching men's and women's football. So it's attracting a different audience. Um, It's attracting a fan base who might have a different interest. So in respect of gambling, why do the gambling companies like football clubs so much? It's because there is a high number of young men with a lot of disposable income who go to football. Uh, When it comes to the women's game, uh, it's a much broader base in in terms of fans. Um, There's an element for saying it's a bit more family friendly. Um, And therefore, in terms of getting arrangements with sponsors, you, you can see the benefits in having a standalone women's team also, there is a genuine danger that given what's happened in the men's game, clubs are looking to cut back and they're saying, well, the women's team's losing money, so we're effectively going to either jettison it or yeah. give it so little support. <clears throat> yeah. They'd actually be better off by themselves. Being independent, they'll be able to have a marketing person who, whose pure aim and focus is to generate money for the women's team as opposed to a marketing manager who's trying to get the money for the men's team and, you know, once a month on a Thursday afternoon, he goes, oh, but I'm going to do something about the women's team as well. Yeah. This occurred to me as you were talking, actually. I, I might send this in as a question for next week's pod. I won't ask you now because it will take some research. But Because obviously every club in the Premier League, the the, the, the children's shirts or the under-18 shirts uh, don't have the gambling sponsors. They have different sponsors. So I'll ask you next, next pod, Kieran, how much is spent sponsoring those shirts as well because I imagine it would be slightly less. Now, question number two is from Mike Slattery. You'll like, you'll like this question question Kieran because Mike has a similar background to us um Mike Slattery sends greetings from the Irish West Coast Kerry Excellent. to be yeah no Kerry to be precise uh, although he explains that he's exiled in Cork City for a while now um I could think of worse places to be exiled um and that's why I love having Irish blood first of all you get the the intro to the question but only in Ireland would a man consider himself exiled when he's 62 miles away from home Basically, which is essentially there are parts of Cork and Kerry that are less than sixty-two miles away, but he's he's exiled in Cork City for a while. Um, but he answers he asks rather a very good question. It it, it seems uh, says Mike, exiled far away from his hometown. It seems that a number of clubs have taken out loans with the Macquarie Bank in Australia, including Wolves, Leicester, Sheffield United, and Bournemouth, and some of the loans. I'm quoting have been secured by mortgaging future TV rights income. So Mike's question is a very good one. To what extent might this have influenced some clubs towards completing the current season rather than having it voided? And how is this going to affect Bournemouth now they're relegated and, of course, their future TV rights will be so much less? Right. Uh, Macquarie Brank, who are sometimes known as the Vampire Kangaroo, having done a bit of research on this. Nice. That's a, um, not a bad nickname. I hope they've got that tattooed. <laughs> yeah, they've, they've been involved in a few uh, shenanigans, uh, which haven't gone down particularly well uh, in terms of some of their other deals. They, they have lent money to football clubs. Um, and, and there's a logic in doing this because... Uh, the broadcast fees come in in instalments over the course of the year. And it could be that the the club wants money, a bit more money for the transfer market or to pay some of the early wage bills and things of that nature. 
And what they do, and, and they do this for both broadcast deals and some transfer deals. We, we, we have spoken about this, this factorization of tra- transfer deals. Mm. Um, and what they do is that they, they say, we'll, we'll give you the money up front. You effectively give us the next check, which is due from the Premier League or which is due on the transfer. And I think they're charging interest of around 6 to 7%. Um, which is you know is, is a lot higher than Manchester United and Spurs are playing, uh, but the, the clubs involved wouldn't necessarily have the same degree of uh, guarantee of being in the Premier League. When it comes to Bournemouth, um, what what Macquarie will have done is they will have said we will have given you we'll give you an advance, um, and it's going to be secured over the next three sets of instalments, um, two of which are due from the Premier League. And the third one, it could be the Premier League or it could be the championship in the form of a parachute payment. So that's going to impact upon the amount of money we're prepared to lend to you in the first place. So the bank are pretty secure um, with regards to that. Yeah, they're, they're smart cookies. That They're not going to put themselves at risk. See, you make the conversation sound, Kieran, rather simple. So it's just two, two chaps or two ladies having a, a martini somewhere, socially distanced, and they come up this up. But presumably there are months of negotiation going into these deals. And who approaches who first? Does, does Macquarie approach a, a, a club in the Premier League and say, look, do you want some money up front? Or would a club like Sheffield United, Leicester, go to them and say, look, I understand you do a bit of deal. You know, I understand you're a businessman type bank. Well, I mean, business cards will have been sent out at, you know, when, when there's meetings uh, held by Premier League and, and there's presentations by banks. And, you know, and Macquarie are a very, very successful bank. So, you know, you know ignore my earlier sniping. Um, and, then you, and then it's a case of building up a relationship like it does with any lender. So the club will normally say, well, we've done a cash flow forecast. Um, it looks like we're going to need some money perhaps go to their existing bank. The existing bank feels a bit uh, a bit twitchy about it. And then you go to the likes of Macquarie. There's also a bank called Close Brothers um, who are quite involved in this. Santander have started to get involved in this. So the banks have realised that it, it's quite lucrative from their point of view. Football in the Premier League is reasonably secure because you have got guaranteed payments on guaranteed dates uh, in, in respect of right. the deal. Um, and therefore, you go ahead on that basis. All right. So if if and when the crowds come back to football and I'm wandering past a hospitality box and I hear a load of pissed up Aussies, it's, it's time to get slightly worried. Um, our next question comes from Steve Gedge. Um, I think I can probably answer this because it's, it's a simple question. Steve has asked, do we know if clubs will be allowing away supporters in when fans are allowed back? Um, my understanding is that... Uh, the government, despite the cancellation of pilot schemes last week, the government is still looking to get fans back in in some proportion by October the 1st. But I understand that we're probably not looking at away fans at all next season unless there is a vaccine um, before the start of New Year. Um, I would guess, Kieran, as well, that common sense would say that if a club's only allowed 20% capacity, 30% capacity, they're not going to waste 5% of that on away fans, are they? And, you know, it, God forbid this is still going on. You won't want people travelling around in large numbers anyway. Yep, you, you've, you've answered the question. Right. I, I did get very, very excited because um, I initially thought, oh, blimey, it's, it, he's the guy from the wedding present. But then I realised it was David Gedge. Um, so I got, oh, blimey, huge wedding present. <laughs> So you know what, Kieran? That's that's in a way that surprised me almost as much as your statement last week. Because I, if if I'd had a if I'd had a bet with Ali as to what band might get mentioned today, wedding present 
wouldn't have been one of them. And it's, I, I've got a feeling there's probably you and I, a regular listener called Martin Soul, maybe two of the other 40,000-odd people listening to this as we speak, will be going, oh, I might check my old wedding present. But uh, yes, carry on, Kira. <laughs> sorry, that did make me chuckle. Sorry. So, so in, in in respect of uh, away fans, uh, we're going to initially return in theory to restricted audience, and there's got to be home priority. Can you, can you because... stop saying audience, Kieran? So lo- I know I'm a lovey, but I'm not, that's seriously, <laughs> sorry, re- restricted fan base. Thank you. Um, now, there's there's got to be a priority given to season ticket holders. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you, we've had this discussion on more than one occasion. Uh, you know, Palace, you've got what. 21,000 season tickets and yep. a 25,000 capacity. We've yep. got about 22. Uh, if, you, if you're running at a third of capacity, you know, you're already working out, well, you know, how many home games am I going to get to see this season, yeah. if, if yeah, any yeah. at all? Um, there is no way that clubs are going to want to incur the extra costs of stewarding, for example, yeah, because absolutely. if you have just home fans, you can really cut back down on your stewarding costs. Yeah. Um, when it comes to away fans, um, you know, in, in terms of the, the issues in respect of, of Aberdeen, part of the reason why their, uh, their fixture was uh, postponed was that there was a genuine risk of transferring to St. Johnston players uh, because you might be asymptomatic. Yeah, and then, yeah. then that bubble or that, 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 uh, that hot spot in, in terms of COVID-19 gets transferred to somewhere else. Yeah. Well, if you've got away fans attending, um, then they could pick it up in the host city, bring it down to theirs, yeah. back to their place. And then we've got a third issue. How, how are these away fans going to get to matches? Well, they're yeah. going to be in transport. They're going yeah. to be in coaches. And you know, we're still trying to restrict to a certain extent sort of having large numbers of people um, on board public transport, or you wouldn't want necessarily four people from four separate households yeah, getting yeah. into a car to go to an away game. So I think for all of those reasons, there'll be no away attendances this season as until, as you rightly said, until we get a successful vaccine and people start taking the vaccine. Because remember, there will be idiots on Facebook claiming that it's all some type of government plot and, and therefore they won't take it themselves. Don't don't start me on that. Really don't start me on anti-vaxxism, seriously. Um, now, our next question is from Aidan Harris. Uh, and it's a quick question, says Aidan, about the Irish League, which again proves that Guy's not really paying attention at the moment because I would have put the two Irish questions together, basically. But I thought I would I'd just, you know, Steve Gedge's question about away fans was chucked in the middle. So I thought it's not my job, is it? I'm, I'm, I'm not paid enough to sort questions out, Kieran, am I? Neither of, it, neither of us. Neither is paid enough. Neither of us are paid enough to work out where questions should be going in this thinking thing. Uh, but Aidan's question is uh, actually it's an interesting one because we've we've talked about it with the English FA. Uh, um, Aidan says the Irish FA rents the National Stadium, uh, Windsor Park, from Linfield, uh, an Irish League club, of course. But how much do Linfield make out of that, uh, and does that give Linfield an advantage over other teams in the league? Um, right. Well, well, the first thing is I, I went in to take a look at Linfield's accounts and here is back on Soapbox. They use abbreviated accounts. So oh, I can't dear. tell how much is. Uh, and then, of course, I can use my old fact. This is Companies Act 2006, Section 442. Yeah, the irony of this um, is not lost on me. Um but uh, Linfield lost £200,000 in, in 2018-19. And that's all I could discern. Um they will have had rental income, so that will have allowed them to to compete uh, in terms of the transfer market and so on. 
Uh, if you take a look at most of the other clubs in, in the Irish League, so I looked at Derry City and some others, most of them tended, were tending to be broke, breaking even. Um, so I think Linfield actually need the rental income coming from the, the Northern Ireland uh, Football Association, because if not, their losses would be even more significant. And, and you know, they're, they're, they're an important part of the Irish League. Mm. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Uh, one of my uncles used to play for Derry City. He says, there is a photograph. It's blurry. It could be him. It's, it's very hard to tell. I mean, it's, it's kind of a low rent boast, isn't it, really, that you played for Derry City in the 60s? But it, it, he kept it realistic, which is something. He did play for Derry City. Oh, that's the achievement. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Joshua Selig, Selig has asked our next question. I apologise, Joshua, if I've mispronounced your surname. But it's again, it's an interesting question. It's a kind of... It's a it's a big picture question. This one, Joshua says, with the City Football Group and Red Bull buying a number of clubs across the world, do you see other groups emerging to do similar? And here's the interesting part of the question. Um, sorry, Joshua, I didn't mean to imply the first part of the question wasn't interesting. It was, but this is the one that I hadn't thought of. Is there a specific reason why these groups acquire individual clubs, or are they just on the lookout for clubs that come up for sale and they think, right, this will be part of the group? Right. Um, There are advantages on having a multi-club approach. Um, First of all, it allows you to to centralise costs and spread them to uh, to to the low low tax areas, to the low cost areas and so on. Um, It's actually quite beneficial to Manchester City because if you take a look at the number of employees that Manchester City has, it's around about 400. Now, that's half of Manchester United. That's half of Chelsea and so on. So some of the jobs within the city group are effectively being farmed out to New York and Melbourne and so on, mm. which helps city in terms of compliance with FFP. So there's there's that an advantage. Also, from, from the geographical issue that Joshua raised, what these clubs are trying to do is to have some form of talent ID in individual areas of the world. So if you take a look at at CFG, um, they've got they've got a club in Uruguay, they've got a club in Japan, they've got a club in India, they've got a club in China, um, they've got a club now in Europe, they've got a club in Australia and the US. So if they if their if their local scouts manage to spot someone who they think, well, we're not convinced he'll necessarily be good enough to the city, but we want a chance to see him develop. And if he does turn out to be good, he's already at one of our umbrella clubs. So therefore, once he's within the umbrella, we can transfer him relatively cheaply to City or to New York City, and then the, the, the club benefits from that. I mean, I think a classic example of that was Aaron Moy. Yeah. He was discovered yeah. in Australia. Um, he, he seemed to go to go from Melbourne City to Manchester City effectively on a free transfer. And then City managed to sell him to Huddersfield for 10 million without him ever playing for City themselves. 
So th there, there are ways, and this is what's referred to as transfer pricing, and it's and it's actually quite common in other lines of business. It doesn't actually refer to player transfers, where um, it, it, it is quite a common issue. Uh, yeah, and sadly, sometimes that exists with uh, uh, you know, unusual transactions taking place in non-football industries where you, you literally just park a product somewhere for 24 hours and, and, and the profit disappears in that country and is taxed at zero percent. I, I think it's fairly plain, though, Kieran, that, that both the Citigroup and Red Bull exist to, to service, for want of a better word, the the big club, don't they? You know, for it, it, it's all about Man City, essentially. I mean, that, that's the, that's the important part of the City Football Group, isn't it? Yes, I mean that's that's the most successful part. It it's generating around about eighty percent of the revenues, if not more, of the whole group, and and can, therefore that the smaller clubs are are literally satellites. But if you can use that for talent ID and for player development, um, there are opportunities for the mothership to make profits on the back of that. Okay. Now, Kieran Williams has asked. Um, well, it's, it's less less a question, more a proposition, actually. Uh, Kieran says he's always thought that the best way to avoid a Wigan-type situation would be for a prospective owner to invest a year's running costs into an FA-run scheme. And if the club gets into trouble in that first year, the FA can dip into that fund up to the amount invested to avoid administration or liquidation. And we had a similar suggestion from uh, Neil Cottrell. I mean, that's, that almost seems too sensible to ever happen. Um, yeah, I, mean, I I was asked to um, give evidence to a think tank about changing football, which, which no wonder you're chuckling, but it's me involved. Um, it's just, you know, you've used that. I was asked to give evidence in so many contexts, Kieran. It's, <laughs> it's, it's always heartening to, to when it ends up in a football one. It's great. <laughs> um, and and th this was one of the this things we put forward. Oh, okay. That, well. Um, if if, a, if an owner comes in, then you you put money into what's referred to as an escrow account, which is independently kept of the club and the owners. Um, it can be maintained. And it's similar to what we see with ABTA and Atoll as far as the travel industry is concerned. Okay. If an airline goes bust, if a travel agency goes bust, then you've got this centralized insurance organization which is used to bail out those those parts of the uh, of, of the industry that go bust exactly the same would work potentially um in football if you if you buy a football club uh, you've got to provide proof of funding well okay one way of doing this is you put in you know 1 million or you know 25% of the price you're paying for the club into a separate account you get some of that back after a year the remainder is kept until you sell the club and that is maintained by the football authorities now uh, Kieran did suggest the football association doing this there's no chance of that happening because the football association has got zero interest in the professional game it focuses on the england team it focuses upon park football to a certain extent and it's got the fa cup as its uh, as its sort of its, as its flagship um, but could it be done by the, the Premier League or the EFL combined? I think potentially it could do. Um, why is that unlikely to be the case? Well, we've already established that both the Premier League and the EFL ultimately are members clubs and they operate in the best interests of members. Now, if you go to the members and say, well, we think it's a really good idea that you put your hands in your pocket and put some money into an insurance scheme, which you might get back in a few years time, they'll say, well, we'd rather not do that. So in principle, am I keen on this? Yes. Do I think this has got a chance of happening? Sadly not. 
Do you know what? If, if Guy's listening, and I, I think he probably will be listening to this one with his fingers crossed <laughs> <laughs> very tightly, I wouldn't mind adding that to Thursday's pod, the stories pod, because even I am not entirely sure of the demarcation line between the FA and the EFL and the Premier League. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners will probably share that slight confusion. So I wouldn't mind uh, – I don't know why my voice went up there. It's not that exciting. But maybe a, a brief discussion on um, – where the FA's influence begins and ends, I think, would be an interesting one for us to talk about, um, along with uh, the salary cap as well. So that's two stories already for Thursday. I don't think we'll be short of any others. Still on Wigan, Mark Ridley, Mark Ridley, uh, not Mark Ridley, Mark Ridley, um, has asked a practical question. And we, we've sort of skirted around this before, but not in any real detail. When a club goes into administration, who appoints administrators? How much do they charge? And who pays them, considering that the only reason they're there is that the club have got no money, technically? Right. Um, administrators are appointed by the company involved itself. This will normally be in the form of a director's meeting or an instruction from the, the, the majority shareholders. So this is what we saw in relation to Wigan Athletic Football Club. Al Young, who became the majority shareholder, um, he then decided, as we know, he wasn't going to pay the bills and therefore he wanted some form of protection over the club. Um, and he did that by appointing the owners, uh, sorry, appointing as the owner a set of administrators. When it comes to their payment, um, they have uh, priority over the un- the unsecured creditors, you know, the, the people who've been supplying Wigan with pies and yeah. kit and the, home money the for the travel and so on. The, the non-football creditors, yeah. The non-football creditors. Yeah. But, but the, the, the administrators are also ahead in the queue of the football creditors themselves. Are they? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, you wouldn't do the work. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember I, I used to do this stuff myself. And there's, there's no way that you you do the work with if there's any danger. Now, what would what used to happen quite often would be that the owners would perhaps be able to get some form of uh, credit line from a bank if they've stuck up their house as a guarantee and things of that nature. But that doesn't appear to have been the case with our young um, because he doesn't appear to be doing anything to help the the the. the uh, the administrators. So what the administrators are doing is they are selling players. They, they are using the player sales to fund paying the day-to-day costs, but also taking their own money. If we take a look at what happened with Bolton, um, I, I downloaded the, the the first report from the administrators and they, and they charged £38,000 for 130 hours work. Whoa. Which is uh... that's Jimmy Car- that's Jimmy Carr money. Whoa, <laughs> that's um, that's I'm so Kieran. I'm I'm slightly surprised by this because I, I I knew I knew the answer because of experience with Palace's administrations and meeting them and and finding out that they were seemingly good guys who wanted to help the club. But so basically, the first role of the administrator is to find the money to pay the administrator. And I, I think a lot of people will be saying, well, why don't the league or the Premier League or, or whatever have their own administrators on standby that get sent into clubs that are in are in trouble like this well that's 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 a, that's a, an interesting suggestion um how <laughs> <Yeah>. many <laughs> that's, comedians don't like if whenever you see a review it says it's an interesting show you think oh Christ, <laughs> wasn't funny was it <laughs> right. um, i think if, if 
and, and it could actually be a really valid valid point, Kevin, if, if we go forward over the course of the next two to three years and we are genuinely expecting there to be five or six administrations yes. a year. Yes. In, in which case, um, but if not, remember between Coventry City in 2014 and Berry Football Club in 2019, there were no administrations. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the Premier League or the EFL, they're, they're having to, to fund two, two accountants on, on a decent wedge who are literally sitting by the bat phone waiting for something to ring. So it's probably more cost effective to to use the the, the professionals in, in the form of the administrators who who do this on a regular basis for a variety of industries. Um, and you know, whilst thirty eight thousand pounds for one hundred and thirty seven hours work, yeah, that that is that is steep. It averages two hundred and seventy nine pounds, and apparently that they bill by the six minutes. Yeah, yeah, that is mm. that, yes. that is pretty tough. Uh, does that mean, Kieran, that? Um... Sorry, I was paying attention. Normally when I go, mm, yes, uh, I, I, it means I'm not paying attention. I was actually paying attention there. Does, does that mean that some clubs potentially wouldn't be able to afford to go into administration then? Well, it, it could be that if the club has no assets. So you, it, you could, for example, have a club which has um, a huge mortgage over it. Uh, so it's got no ground to sell or it doesn't own the ground. It only rents the ground. Um, then it, 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 you and let's say the club went into administration in October and there's no no transfer window until January, then that club might initially ha- might have to have that go into liquidation because there's no chance of realising any assets. Right. Um, un- unless you could persuade the, the administrators to say, well, look, if, if you hold on to January, we've got Joe Bloggs here who's worth five million, you can flog him. Yeah. So you know, the, the administrators, the first thing that you do upon appointment is you go in and you, you've normally done a bit of pre-work. You've normally been given a heads up by all accounts. The, the guys at Wigan, they were only given about 40 hours notice at the very max. Um, you'd, you'd work out, okay, well, what, what has this company got to flog? And if it's got nothing worth selling, you just decline the appointment and it goes straight into liquidation. Oh, right. Well, that, that's the last question answered. So an administrator can has no legal requirement to, once asked to do it, they don't have to do it. No, no, you're, you're you're perfectly entitled to to turn it down if if you believe that you wouldn't be able to realise the assets in an orderly manner and ensure that some of the key people were were paid, i.e., yourself um, and the lawyers. Yeah. Okay. Now, our next question, I think, will be shorter to answer. It comes from uh, an old friend of ours from way back in China. Um, I, I'm fairly sure, and this is how you taught me to pronounce it before, Kieran, because you have more experience with Chinese people. It's uh, Leo Tianle Li. Uh, Leo's question is quite simple. Do football clubs pay VAT on player transfers? And if not, why not? Uh, the answer is that they do um, in respect of all transfers of registrations, because that's what you are buying. If it's between two different com- uh, two different countries in the EU, then you wouldn't be paying VAT because you'd effectively get it back. But the big issue in terms of VAT, we- we've been looking at transfers in the sense that many of them are arranged in terms of installments over a period of years. The HM- HMRC are entitled to VAT on the whole transfer in the next VAT payable period, which could be in a month's time. Right. So if you if you sell a player for 50 million quid and it's over five installments of 10 million, uh, you, know, you work out the VAT on that. And practically that, that first installment you get goes straight to the VAT people. Um, and then you are actually having to wait 12 months before you get any money for the player himself. Mm-hmm. 
I'm going to say mm, there, Kieran, because that, that was a genuine. Because as soon as you mentioned VAT, I just the, the shutters come down and the la 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 la. Um, we're nearly there. We're going to bring this in in under an hour, Kieran. I'm determined. It's like, it's like one of those old Western films when you say that we're going to bring the, we're going to get these cattle across this country. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do this. Now, um, Phil Clark, uh, or as he's now known, old Phil Two Questions Clark, because Phil. Um, Chucked in the Joe Gomez question earlier on. Millwallfield. Millwallfield. It's Millwallfield. Yeah. 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 I, I don't want to call him Millwallfield because, you know, that, that people can tie him down and they know where he lives. This week, he's filled two questions, Clark. Um, and it's a good question. It kind of ties in with, with Wigan and other things. Why did the Premier League not have an agreement that a club cannot be promoted if they've recently been found guilty of financial misdemeanours and they haven't dealt with said financial misdemeanours? Um, the reason for that is that you could have a situation where a club from the EFL is on a charge and that charge has not been resolved by the start of the season or actually probably more importantly, by the date that fixtures are announced. The Premier League wants a clean cut as early as possible to start planning the next season and it also gives out huge checks in June. Normally, each you know, if if, if the if the if the Premier League season had finished, you know, non-COVID year, uh, that that first check comes in in early June for all the clubs, all the members of the Premier League, and they they go and you know they get giddy and start spending it on transfers because that provides the Premier League with a talking point over the summer. You know, Palace don't get good. God knows what we spend it on. Was that what happened on with with QPR back in the day when they were they were in, they had problems with the EFL and then got promoted and the EFL problems went away while they were in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean uh, QPR's issues uh, arose in 2014 when um, they. They 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 wrote off, or rather, the owners wrote off. I think it was a sixty million pound loan uh, due from the due to themselves to the club, uh, and QPR included effectively added it onto pie sales that season, um, and included it as income. Uh, the EFL kicked off about that, but it took three years to resolve the legal case. Now, um, that, you know, as far as the Premier League were concerned. QPR were promoted. They won the match um, in the playoffs against Derby County. But a guy called Bobby Zamora scoring the winning yeah, goal in that particular match. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the, the Premier League, they, they just want to have 20 teams there. They don't want any aggravation or any hassle coming from the EFL. That's why EFL points deductions would never count in the Premier League. Right. They, they are not the same organisation. They are different groups of individuals. I'm not saying that they don't get on, but you know, the owners of the clubs in the Premier League, frankly, aren't interested in what's happening in the EFL. Mm, that's a shame. Um, we've got two questions left. The last one is the competition winner. Uh, I was going to set up a fan, a fanfare sound effects, but see my see my earlier comments about not being paid enough money to sort the question order out. Um, Vernon, uh, who's a London now, Vernon, God bless him, is a is a loyal listener to the club, uh, to the club, loyal listener to the to the pod. And Vernon basically has been the equivalent of uh, having his hand up at the back of the class. Uh, like Lisa saying, please, please answer this question. Um, and I forgot to ask it last week, and I, I apologise. Vernon's a slightly worried Sheffield Wednesday fan. Simple question. If, if Sheffield Wednesday appeal the 12-point deduction and lose, could they face further economic or points deductions? 
I consider this to be very unlikely. And the reason for that is Sheffield Wednesday have already been given the maximum deduction in, in respect of breaches of financial fair play, which is 12 points. Now, you can add to that what's referred to as aggravating points deductions, um, and that's normally for uh, inappropriate behaviour by the club. But both the club owners in February when they were charged and the club itself were found innocent of those charges by the tribunal. I can't see the EFL having lost twice coming back trying to um, have an appeal against that. So if Wednesday do decide to um, have an appeal and, and they've got 14 days from um, the, the, the original appeal date, um, I think the only issue from their point of view would be the costs in relation to, to having an appeal. Uh, you know, they would be obliged to pay the EFL's costs and, and the costs of holding the tribunal. Uh, in, in respect of Wigan, remember, we thought it was in the region of four to five hundred thousand pounds. That's the figure that's been quoted by the press. Um, from Wednesday's point of view, is four to five hundred grand worth twelve points in, in the championship? Yeah, my gut reaction that it would be, but uh, un- until we see the the long form of the agreement or the long form of the judgment from the tribunal, um, I think they're probably holding fire at present. Okay, now our final question, Kieran, is the and what we've we got fifty one, thirty one, thirty two seconds. I've just wasted three seconds counting that out. But we got we got time. We're bringing this in under an hour. Um, our final question is the competition. We remember the exciting news uh, at the end of last week um, when we announced that one of your uh, freely available top trumps sets of cards were available for. Um, the winner of a competition in which Guy would choose the best question that came in in a very specific time period. Uh, and the winner is, uh, that's a cheap drum roll, um, Jamie Moss. Jamie Moss, the good news, Jamie, is that you are getting a pack of top trumps cards in the post. The bad news is you're going to have to give Kieran your address to get them. That's never a good thing. Um, maybe set up some kind of PO box or drop point. I don't know. Um, the other bad news, Jamie, is I suspect you would have got this question asked anyway because it's a very good question. We had a, an excellent response. Again, remember, we spoke to Paul Howard, um, the executive director of the Foundation of Philadelphia Union, on that last pod. About- yeah, we've got, we got loads of Philadelphia fans now. I think, uh, the, you know, or, or the other club has on, on the back of that. So, so yeah, a well done on the interview yourself, and and b well done on the interviewee for for coming up and just putting forward such a passionate case oh, for community football. Wasn't he great? And also. I don't know why, all the better for being so unexpected coming from what a lot of English football fans consider an anodyne imitation league. It was fantastic to hear. Oddly enough, you know, there's quite a few Palace fans out there anyway because we played two friendlies against Philadelphia Union a couple of years back, presumably because they're in our price range. You know, you talk about being, in, <laughs> you talk about Barcelona being invited all over the world. We got invited to Philadelphia. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I will be following them in the MLS. But Jamie Moss's question is, is a good one off the back of that. And, and Jamie says, Kevin's chat with the head of the Community Foundation in Philly got me thinking about the financial impact of relegation on the foundations in England, because I mentioned the the extent of Premier League funding to foundations like Palace for Life, of which I'm a trustee. So Jamie asked you, Kieran, what the cost of on the pitch failure is for off the pitch initiatives. I I can tell you 
substantial. Uh, you, you, I've told you this before, Kieran, that uh, I'm very proud to be a trustee of Palace for Life and I really, really enjoy the meetings, but we've come to an agreement that when it comes to the financial bits, I'm allowed to go and look at the pitch for, for 20 minutes, basically. Uh, it used to be the trophy. I went the first time, I went and had a look at the trophy cabinet, but you know, it lasted a lot more than three minutes, so I had to look at something else because I don't understand the finance. But, but I do, there was a, a time a couple of seasons back when towards Christmas we were languishing not far above the relegation zone and we looked at the figures that for the foundation and and you know you talk about a club having to make redundancies having to lose things uh, we would have lost a lot if, if we lost the premier league funding we would we'd be in, in big trouble so you, you could probably put that in a more grown-up articulate way i imagine yeah well, i think you're probably looking at around about one to two million per club when they get relegated um but as well as that it's those outreach programs which which are superb football does have this incredible ability to engage with people who otherwise would perhaps become disassociated with the rest of society it's, it's it is inclusive um i'm i'm a huge fan of all the clubs and all the schemes that they do certainly working in uh, working in Liverpool, the Everton in the community scheme is absolutely sensational. But yeah, it, it would be job losses. It would be it would be programs that would have to be cut shut down. Um, we are talking a seven figure uh, seven figure sum per club up upon relegation, which is such a shame. And and no parachute payment either. It, it's it's a straight loss. And also, I think it's very important to to point out as I talk about my my pride in what Palace do. You talk about your pride in what Brighton do. Every single football club in the, in the league has some kind of outreach scheme, some kind of foundation, some kind of trust, from whether it's Palace, whether it's Morecambe, whether it's Accrington, whether it's Tramia, they're all doing it and they're all doing remarkable work in their community. And that's why when a club like Berry goes out of business, it's not just the football club and its employees that get it, it affected, it's, it's the community as a whole. And that's why it's so important to keep football clubs. So it it's worth thinking about and and, and it, it it's strange as well because we ask for money every football club asks for money and people go they must have money they're a premier league club they're a championship club but these these foundations these trusts are independent of the clubs and they need to raise money as well as that. and they're doing fantastic jobs in their community and it's a great and that's why it's such a good question from Jamie because if a, if a club like Bournemouth and some clubs like Bournemouth may have an owner who's wealthy enough to pick up the slack but for other clubs, you're simply talking about money that disappears in the space of two weeks. Yep, you're, you're absolutely right. And you know there are clubs that have been in uh, associated with socially deprived areas, and, and they need the money even more than than ever before. Yeah, Kieran. On that note, um, we keep looking for a positive note to end these pods on, but at the moment it's hard, isn't it? But thank you to everybody for your questions. We'll be back with our usual news pod on Thursday. If you do have questions for us, and I can't stress enough, it doesn't matter how small scale you think it is or how large scale it is, Kieran. I did say we will answer it. <laughs> we won't answer it. I will ask it, and Kieran will answer it. And with um, your mind maps are getting a lot of traction as well, aren't they? Well, you should see the one for this show. It's, it's, uh, yes. Yeah. It, it, it's, you won't, of course. Yeah. I, know. Um, I, I, I see them, but I don't bother opening them. <laughs> see, they look like, I just, I, in my mind, you had one for flirting with the Baroness. That's what worries me that you, you sorted that out. Um, questions at priceoffootball.com, and we will see you. We won't see you. I wish we could see you. Uh, we will talk to you on Thursday. Take care, everybody. Stay safe, boys and girls. And if you do like the show, um, if you'd like to give us a rating on the, that purple icon, that Apple thing, we, we don't understand how it works. We, we're just 
two schmucks. Um, but uh, by all accounts, talking to producer guy, it does affect uh, sort of the ratings. So if you give us a review, you can write whatever you want. Apple apparently don't read the reviews, so we can say you can say they're a pair of losers. It's eyebrow raising stuff, whatever you want. Uh, but you know, if you give us a five star review, we do put a lot of work into this to try to keep you entertained, and we do appreciate all your questions as well. Yeah, and I can't tell you how worried I got when I heard those first two words, that purple, and then luckily the word was icon afterwards. That's great. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Bye bye. I'm for the ball.